Jesus is the perfect model of submission. In this life and in eternity past and forever, he has submitted his will to his Father. You remember what he said in the garden? Father, not my will, but yours be done. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series with part nine of The Holy Spirit's Influence. As you've learned so far, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, outlines the three primary effects of being under the influence of the Holy Spirit, a love for God-centered music, a pattern of thankfulness, and a heart of submission. And it's the third effect that Tom will examine in the program today, a heart of submission. What does it mean to have a heart of submission? How is it displayed? And are there limitations to submission? If so, what are they? Well, Tom will explore these questions and more today through the lens of Ephesians chapter 5. But before we begin, here's Tom with some opening thoughts. Tom? Because those in authority in a fallen world often abuse that authority. Sadly, the whole principle of submission to authority has a, has a sort of bad name in today's world, in today's culture. It's important for us to remember as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, that we must submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. We come into the Christian faith identifying the reality that Jesus is Lord and that we're willing to submit to Him. When it comes to our submission to human authorities, however, of course there are biblical limitations to that submission, which we'll consider. But we're still to have and cultivate a heart of submission to authority, and frankly, it is a reflection of our relationship to the work of the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher to discover more from God's Word on The Word Unleashed. If you'd had the opportunity to walk through Boston In the 1770s, everywhere you went, you would have seen a sign that sort of captured the spirit of the times. The sign would have read like this, we serve no sovereign here. We serve no sovereign here. We understand the tumultuous times that produced that saying as the revolution had begun against Britain. But as you think about that sign for a moment, It seems to me, and certainly reflects the heart of the Scripture, that that sign is really placarded on every human heart by nature. We are born rebels against God. We are born with a sign, as it were, emblazoned across our souls, which says, I serve no sovereign here. As one man wrote, fallen man's fierce hostility to God is the response of his egotism, to God's claim to his allegiance. Determined to assert himself, to assert his independence, to be the center of his own life, to be his own God, he cannot help but hate the real God whose very existence gives lie to all of his self-assertion. There isn't enough room in the universe for two gods. And so man rebels. He wants to be his own God, He rebels against the true God. That rebellion that is a part of our human nature, the Scripture describes in various ways, and it manifests itself 
in various ways as well. One of the chief ways that our rebellion ultimately against God manifests itself in the world is rebellion against the authorities that He has established in our lives. There are any number of places you could go to substantiate that or to hear it set forth. One of them that came to my mind was the words of the poet Percy Shelley, who wrote this of obedience. He said, obedience, bane of all genius, virtue, freedom, truth, makes slaves of men and of the human frame a mechanized automaton. You see, if you're a rebel against the king, then you also refuse to submit to the officials that he sends, to his representatives. So it makes sense then, when you really think about it, that even the idea of submission in our world, submission to those in authority, is very unpopular. It's unpopular to all human beings. It's certainly unpopular in a country that began in a revolution, and it's unpopular in the state of Texas, where we don't like anyone telling us what to do. Instead, our culture is in deliberating people, liberating them from their authorities, encouraging them to throw off all restraint. This is true against the government. You can see it occasionally, those who sort of connect via the internet, who live under the sort of loose banner of anarchy, will occasionally take to the streets in one of the major cities of the world to express their disdain of governmental authority. Throw off the restraints of government. You see it in the church. There is in churches a sort of hue and cry to do away with things that the Scripture teaches, like church discipline, not to have any membership so that I'm not accountable to anyone or anything. I'm my own boss. And don't give us any real preaching or authoritative declarations. Tell us what you think, and we'll sit in judgment on whether or not it's true. You see it in the home and family. You see it with wives' response to their husbands. We have an equal authority, they might say. You see it in children to parents. You see it in the workplace as employees respond to their employers. You see, the rebel heart that each of us is born with is a rebel against God, and therefore, since we can't get to God, we rebel against the other authorities that he puts in our lives who tell us what to do. Sin fosters and promotes that rebellion, both against God and against those who are in authority over us. So it makes sense then, when you think about it, that if sin fosters and promotes that rebellion, both against God and his representatives on earth, then sanctification, the process of being made more like Jesus Christ, would promote its opposite. It would promote submission to those duly constituted authorities. If a life of sin produces rebellion, then a life of biblical wisdom is going to promote the principle of submission to authority. That's exactly what Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. I invite you to turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Now let me remind you of the context. In Ephesians 5, Paul has told us that as Christians, if we're going to walk in a way that's worthy of our calling, of all that God has done for us in Christ, then we have to walk in biblical wisdom. How do you walk in biblical wisdom? Well, really the chief way and the way that he sort of built to is in verse 18. Don't be drunk with wine, for that's dissipation. That leads to dissipation of all kinds, but instead, here's how to walk in biblical wisdom. Be filled with the Spirit. That is, as we saw, allow the Spirit of God to fill you with a deep 
rich, illuminating understanding of His Word that directs and controls our thoughts, directs and controls our attitudes, directs and controls our actions. That's what it means to be filled by the Spirit with the Word of God. Now, when we're under the influence of the Spirit like that, we've seen that there are effects, our consequences. In fact, there are three primary consequences of being under the influence of the Spirit. And they're listed for us here by Paul in verses 19 to 21. Let me read this section for you. We'll pick up back in verse 18 where the main verb of the sentence is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now that's one sentence in the Greek text. The main verb of that sentence comes in verse 18. Be filled. Be filled by the Spirit with the Word. Then in verses 19 to 21, there are five participles that modify that main verb, be filled. Notice in verse 19, speaking, singing, making melody. In verse 20, giving thanks. And the fifth one is in verse 21. You'll see it in the marginal note if you have a New American Standard Bible. It's literally being subject. There's the fifth participle. Now those five participles explain the results of being filled by the Spirit. There are really three consequences because the first three all have to do with one thing. So the three consequences are this. In verse 19, a love for God-centered music. Secondly, a pattern of thankfulness in verse 20. And in verse 21, a heart of submission. Wherever the influence of the Spirit is felt, there will be those three great consequences. A love for God-centered music, a pattern of thankfulness, and a heart of submission. Those are the, the spiritual diagnostic that you and I can take. As we look at our own souls, if you see those things in your own life and heart, then it's an indication that you are under the influence of the Spirit. In addition to being a spiritual diagnostic, there's sort of a target, a goal at which all of us as Christians should aim. We should promote and encourage these things in our hearts as well. Now, we've already looked at the first two of these. In verse 19, a love for God-centered music. Verse 20, a pattern of thankfulness. Today, we need to examine the third and final great consequence of a life under the influence of the Spirit and the Word. And that is, in verse 21, a heart of submission. Look at verse 21. And be subject, literally, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Here is the third great consequence of a life that is under the influence of the Spirit. What I want to do today is examine this verse by, as we have with the other two verses, asking and answering a series of questions. So let's take this apart. Let's begin with the first question. Why is submission so important? Why would it be one of the main effects of being under the influence of the Spirit and the Word? What makes this issue so important to God? Well, it's a concept that is embedded in God's basic law to us, in what we call the Ten Commandments. In fact, let's go back to Exodus 20, where Moses 
has the people at the mountain of Sinai, and there God gives them a series of what we call the Ten Commandments. Let me just remind you of what's going on here. Look at the preface to the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the preface to the Ten Commandments. And it underscores the weight and authority of these commands. They are important for several reasons. They're important because of the way they were revealed. You know, Moses received a lot of God's law from God personally and privately during the 80 days, the two 40-day trips up to Mount Sinai. But these 10 commandments, verse 1 says, God actually spoke. If we had time, I'd take you to Deuteronomy, where it's clear that the people, all two million plus of them gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, heard the actual voice of God speaking these 10 commandments from that awesome scene on the top of Mount Sinai. That underscored their importance. Imagine yourself there, hearing God actually speak, feeling the earthquake, seeing the clouds, seeing the lightning, and hearing out of that cloud the thundering voice of God as he speaks these 10 commandments. They're also important because of the person who revealed them. Notice verse 2, I am the Lord. I am, you'll see the word Lord in all caps. That means it's the Hebrew word for God's personal name, Yahweh. I am Yahweh. The I am, the one you call he is. Notice the people's relationship to this person. I am Yahweh, your God. These commands are also important because of the grace God had shown them. Verse 2 says, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. How do these people become God's people? By his gracious, divine act of deliverance. And that becomes the motive then for their obedience to God. Now then, as the Ten Commandments, as God speaks them and they flow forth, understand that these Ten Commandments are not all-inclusive. Think of each of these commandments as a summary statement of an area or category of life. It's not that these Ten Commands are the only ones that are important. These were like hooks on which all of the other commands could be hung. They reminded the people that God had a right to have authority in a certain area of their lives. So notice with that in mind, the fifth word, or the fifth commandment in verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Now this is a very important commandment and a very important placement, because it marks a transition in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments. It marks a transition from God, who is the ultimate authority, and whose expectations of toward himself are described in the first four commandments. And then in commandments number six through 10, you have our responsibilities to all other human beings, to one another, to our peers, if you will. So you have God as the ultimate authority, and then you have the commands in six through 10 to one another. But standing in the middle of that, standing at a transitionary point as kind of a hinge commandment is this commandment number five. This fifth commandment is about human authority. It's not addressed that we should respond this way to everyone, as verses 6 through 10, 
but specifically, as Luther said, to those who are the representatives of God. As God is to be served with honor and fear, Luther said his representatives are to be so as well. Understand that, again, the parents described in this fifth commandment are not all that God's concerned about us honoring and respecting. That is merely a hook to remind us that God has positioned authority in our lives, one of which is our parents, and we are to submit to that authority. They're merely representative here in this fifth commandment, parents are, of all of those God has placed over us. So ultimately then, understand that the flow of the Ten Commandments. You have God speaking, commanding, with his own voice, what ought to be done. And there are specific responsibilities we have toward God, and then there are these specific responsibilities we have toward our peers, toward one another. In between that is our responsibility to authority, to those God has placed over us. So understand this then. As John Stott says, submission is a humble recognition of the divine ordering of society. It is a humble recognition of the divine ordering of society. That's why it's so important, because it is God's authority mediated through human authority. Ultimately, all human authority comes from God and is based on his authority. He put it into place, and he demands our submission to it. Now, that brings us to a second question. What exactly is submission? Go back with me to Ephesians 5. And here Paul answers that question. What exactly is submission? He answers it by the word he chooses. The Greek word translated in verse 21, be subject or being subject. That word literally means, it's a two-part word in, in the original language. And if we took those two parts and translated them literally, it literally means to order oneself under. To order oneself under that is under someone in authority. It's used some 40 times in the New Testament. It is an action of the will. We are not called to subjugate, to brutalize those under authority. Instead, those under authority are called to willingly, voluntarily, with an act of their own will, order themselves under that authority. This word, I think, is most clearly seen when you look at it in the way it's used very often, and that is in military settings. It referred in that military context to the whole issue of order and rank. In the military, there are, in each service in our country, there are specific designations of rank and order. When you intentionally, as an act of your will, place yourself under someone who is over you in rank, you yield your will to theirs. That's what this word means. It means, one of the leading lexicons of the Greek language calls it voluntary yielding. You yield your will to theirs. Really, when you look at this idea of submission, it includes two basic concepts. It includes, number one, acknowledging the rightful authority of that person, and number two, voluntarily ordering yourself under that authority. That's what submission is. It is acknowledging their rightful authority over you and yielding your will, putting your will under their will. We're not talking here about 
mindlessness. We're not talking about not presenting your own ideas, your own opinions to the authority, talking about issues. We're not talking about a sort of wallflower approach to submission. We're talking about when ultimately there is a conflict between you and the person over you in rank, you yield your will to their will. That's what this is about. It's an attitude of mind and heart that remembers that you have, by God's own divine design, been put under the authority of others. And you yield to that authority. Now, that brings the third question. To whom are we to submit? Well, look at verse 21. Paul tells us here, and being subject or submitting to one another. To one another. Now, what does that mean? Now, I'll just tell you honestly, there's been a lot of debate about what that means. There are two basic positions of what this means you'll see in various commentators. Two options. Option number one is this is talking about mutual submission of every Christian to every other Christian. We are to kind of mutually submit to one another. So I submit to you, you submit to me, we all submit to one another. There are men I highly respect who take that position but I can't take it because of the evidence, and I'll tell you what that evidence is in just a moment. There's a second view that's very common, very well defended, and it's that it is submission to all human authorities. That verse 21 is not talking about mutual submission where you submit to me and I submit to you and we all submit to each other, but rather we are called upon as individuals to submit ourselves to whomever the authorities are in our lives. I believe the The evidence is very strong in favor of the second option. Let me tell you why. Let me give you the arguments. Argument number one, the meaning of the word submit. The very meaning of the word translated here, be subject, argues for the second position. Over the last several weeks, just to make sure, on two different occasions, I've gone through the scriptures, both the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, and looked at the use of this Greek verb in all 68 cases in which it occurs. Every time this Greek verb occurs in Old Testament or New Testament, it always refers to submitting to someone who is over you in position or authority. Let me just give you some examples. Here are some of the examples of how this word is used. It's used of people submitting themselves to a king, It's used of demons submitting themselves to the apostles. It's used of all things being subject to or submitting to Christ. It's used of wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters, church members to elders, Christians to governmental rulers, and ultimately, Christians to God and Christ. Those are most of the contexts in which this word is used. And in all of the contexts, without exception, it is always a reference to yielding our will to someone who is over us in a position of authority. If verse 21 doesn't mean that, it would be the only exception of all 68 occurrences in the New Testament. And by the way, even those who take view number one agree with that. Number two, argument number two, why it has to be submission to authority. The flow of the context. Look at verse 21. You have the word be subject. It's there in the the English and the Greek. But notice in verse 22, it says wives, and then the word be subject is in italics in our New American Standard Bible. That's because the words don't appear in the Greek text. 
Paul borrows the idea from verse 21. He doesn't even repeat the verb in verse 22. So it's clear then that Paul intends that the wives' response to their husbands be an example of the kind of submission he's talking about. In fact, all of the examples of submission that follow verse 21 are talking about submitting to people in positions of authority. Wives to husbands in verses 22 down through verse 33. Children to parents in chapter 6 verses 1 to 4. And slaves to masters in chapter 6 verses 5 to 9. While those in authority, those in leadership, are told in these passages to be kind, to be considerate, to be understanding, to be loving, to be self-sacrificial, what they are never told to do is submit to those over whom they exercise that authority. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part nine of his current series, The Holy Spirit's Influence. Tom will bring you part 10 on our next program. Do join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.